Hey, everybody, before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to make sure you're following Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation. We're on Facebook under that name. We're on Instagram and Twitter under Testis Cancer. That's T-E-S-T-E-S Cancer, C-A-N-C-E-R, which I'm very sure that you know how to spell at this point. So make sure you give us a follow if you're not already so that when we post new content or post reminders for your monthly self-exams, you can be the first one to see it. Thanks so much. Let's get into the episode. The stories shared on It Takes Balls are unique to the individual sharing. Always speak with your trusted medical provider for treatment options specific to you. Welcome back to It Takes Balls, presented by Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Ajay Nangia. He's a professor and vice chair of urology at University of Kansas Hospital System and Medical Center. And today, we're going to be talking about fertility and sexual health. Dr. Nangia, thank you so much for being here. Hi. Hi. Pleasure. So, you know, this is something that at least in public school, I remember learning about like sperm and as early as fifth grade, but kind of talk to me about the life of sperm, like from the start in the body to all the way to ejaculation or nocturnal emission or whatever happens. Sure. Sure. So, um, first of all, of course, sperm is made, um, puberty onwards. There are the stem cells called spermatogonia before that and the prepubertal state, but at puberty, when all the changes are happen, voice, muscles, all the rest of it, uh, is when sperm starts becoming present. Now, we don't exactly know if it starts a little bit before those secondary characteristics. Um, you know, historically, we've not been getting semen analyses on young boys. It's kind of felt, um, um, you know, taboo. But needless to say, there are about five stages of sperm production within the testicle, everything from the spermatogonia, which are the stem cells, which um, are either they replenish themselves or they go on to make sperm. And then there are the uh, primary spermatocytes, secondary spermatocytes, spermatids, and then sperm themselves, the ones with tails. Why is that important? Because they go from the 23 pairs of chromosomes, which is what all body cells have, to half the chromosomes, which is what a sperm needs to be able to then match onto 23 from the female egg that forms another human. Um, and so that whole production from spermatogonia to um, um, mature sperm is about arguably about 60 days, depending on what model you use. And some of these studies are really old. Um, obviously, a lot of animal models, they can't really do it on humans very well. Um, but then it takes some time to transit through the tubular system in the testicle, the epididymis, which is the sperm duct, at the back of the testicle, which I call the buff and polish. It's where the swimming ability of the sperm kind of happens uh, because of uh, gradient changes in the electrolytes and the, in the epididymis which is alkaline, and then uh, it travels um, probably persistently throughout uh, a young adult's life um, through contractions of the vas deferens, but that's exaggerated through the stimulation of the penis and visual auditory kind of stuff that triggers the alpha adrenergic nerves that causes the emission of the fluid um, basically from the vas, the seminal vesicles, which are behind the prostate, into the prostatic chamber with the bladder neck closing and the external sphincter, the one we contract when we need to pee or cough or sneeze, um, and it kind of builds up some pressure. Then a different set of nerves cause the contraction of that chamber 
to be expelled out through the tip of the penis as an ejaculation. So that whole process from testicle sperm being made to being stored um, behind in the epididymis on the ampulla of the vas is about 74 days. And so we kind of crudely say 90 days just to make life easier, three-month process from production to storage of, of that sperm. Wow. So, that I mean, that's a long time to still be going through all that process. Like, so what comes out? Is is that the mature, like, 90, 90 day stuff or? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, the, the replenishment is, you know, the mechanism of all of this movement is actually still not very well understood. Here we are in the 21st century. We still don't fully understand how that propulsion system all works. But um, basically, 70% of a fluid that a man ejaculates is from the storage system behind the prostate called the seminal vesicles. And those are also filled with um, um, alkaline fluid and fructose, so a sugar. And that's why I think most of the sperm that a man ejaculates at any given time is not from the testicle, but mostly from the seminal vesicles. Um, and then a small amount from the ampulla of the vas, which is sort of kind of towards the testicle a little bit. Um, and very little fluid actually is coming from the testicle at that time. And we know this from vasectomy um, work, meaning that if you do a vasectomy and you snip the tubes on both sides in the scrotum, a man's semen analysis the next day actually is pretty normal. So that goes to prove if you cut off the testicle, you've still got sperm downstream. And it can go on for at least up to 10 more ejaculations. Maybe it starts declining, which there's studies uh, that show that decline and really goes to zero by 20 ejaculations if you cut off the sperm from the testicle. But until that time, there's still a lot of sperm stored. So if a man ejaculates certainly more than um, once a day, you're going to deplete that storage. Um, so that's not recommended when people are trying to have kids. But they did do a study a long time ago of young men and just had them, you know, collect a specimen daily and they actually could replete and replenish. But we do still recommend in people who have infertility or sperm count issues or even natural conception not to do it every day, but to every do it every other day to have a child. Uh, so some of that physiology is known some of it is um theoretical and some of them are from animal studies um but the most important thing and to answer your question is if there's any insult to the human body within that 90 day period that the sperm's been made such as fever covid um a hot tub you know binging of alcohol drugs anything else that's bad for the brain, so the testicular brain is the other brain, which actually is very much like the this brain. And therefore, that sperm can be affected. Chemo, radiation, which is where we come bring it back to the world of testicular cancer. So within that 90-day period, if you had something bad happen, that sperm might be affected. But then it even more is affected after that because the effects on the new sperm that will be being made at day zero of that, you know, insult um, it's going to be 74 days later before that shows up, so to speak, or 90 days if we play that, you know, that number. 
That's insane. So, I mean, like when somebody gets pregnant, that really is a miracle because it has made it all the way through this journey. Oh, it's insane. It's insane. The way I describe it to patients, and this is just in the fallopian tube. This isn't even in getting to the fallopian tube, all right? If a sperm was a blade of grass, all right, and the egg was the football, the length of the football field, 100 yards, is just as a guess about where the fallopian tube is with all of the narrowings and the kind of crypts we call it of in and out. It's not a direct shot. That's just from the fallopian tube to the egg, all right? You've got to get up there through a fairly hostile environment, um, you know, the vagina, the cervix, the uterus, even though all of those have been prepared um, physiologically to be receptive to this stuff. You know, one in, they say, used to be one in 70,000 sperm makes it to the fallopian tube. I think it's like one in 7 million uh, from another study they did in a, in, in a, you know, a flushed uterus, they showed where and how long did it take for the sperm that they flushed to get to the, where they needed to um, before they did the hysterectomy on this particular woman uh, or a series of women. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's not just one sperm is enough. God, you need to have millions to get where it needs to go. Interesting. So what does, like, healthy sperm look like, you know, both to the naked eye, like a guy looking at, his stuff versus under yeah. a mic and under a microscope. So that's another very interesting question. All right. I don't think we've really learned a lot in the last hundred plus years. And I'll tell you why we do. We, we don't, we do, we've learned stuff, but not as much as we think we have, you know, sperm was first seen under the microscope probably in the 1800s. I think that's accurate. I, I hope I'm not off a little bit, but they first diagnosed or find out that the human semen has another thing in it. That's moving like a fish in the 1800s. I mean, Leonardo da Vinci used to draw pictures of human sperm and they thought the baby was in the head of the sperm or in the head of something, right? They didn't, again, they didn't know that in the 14th, 15th century per se, but the micro, it's been looked at under the microscope for over a hundred years. And I hate to tell you, nothing much has changed in determining the shape, the length, the width uh, of a sperm since then. I mean, we've become a little bit more accurate with measurements, but the value of knowing that is as caveman-ish uh, or cave person-ish as then, all right? You look at a sperm and it looks okay. That's it. It looks okay, all right? There are other tests. There are functional tests that one can use, but often those functional tests cannot be uh, applied to the sperm and then use it. We can do the genetics on the sperm. We can do DNA fragmentation. We can look at mannose binding, which is a sugar binding end. We can look at the acrosome reaction. We can even see how it penetrates a hamster egg as a in in you know in the lab. But how that all correlates to how that particular sperm would work in the body is you know a correlation rather than an absolute knowledge. Okay, because we cannot use that actual sperm after it's been tested because it's been tested and often with stains and we're worried about, you know, teratogenic, meaning causing birth defects and other things. Plus the sperm might not work. So people have tried things like weight distribution of the sperm, which you can still use the sperm to um, what they call flow cytometry, where they can literally under a microscope sift fluid zipping through by it and kind of they do that for cell sorting anyway. Um, and yeah, there's little techniques, natural fluorescence of the sperm. Um, and even then, we can look at it more scientifically by doing what they call electron microscopy. So normal microscopy is like 400 times normal 
looking at something in front of you, okay? So it's 400 times magnification. Now, electron microscopy is literally that. It's shooting electrons or being able to see electrons moving, um, and that can see right into, inside a sperm and the, what they call the infrastructure of the, of the sperm. And how that actually correlates with how a sperm works, though, is tricky because, again, it's a matter of what percentage of sperm look like that, you know, to the pregnancy rate. So there's a correlation. But was it a bad sperm or a good sperm that inject that actually got someone pregnant? Who the hell knows, right? But when they do IVF now, specifically a technique called ICSI, I-C-S-I, we're still in the caveman days where we have the embryologist look for the best-looking sperm to inject into the best-looking egg and then hope magic happens. Hmm. And then all sorts of internal science, again, of which much of which we don't know a lot about how embryo development happens, progression, you know, and then sticking in the, in the uterus. A lot of science we don't really have because it's difficult to study in the human model. Yeah, that's crazy. So to the naked eye, like a guy at home who maybe who's like doing a sperm making and he's, he's looking in that cup. I mean, what, is there a color like that he's looking for? Is there, you know, a specific amount of cloudiness? Like what? Right. Right. So really just to the naked eye, most semen is white or yellowish or creamy colored. All right. Occasionally not good, but if there's some streaks of blood, we, I get asked to see patients with hematospermia, blood in the semen. You don't want it rusty colored, which again, unfortunately does happen in spinal cord patients, sometimes in young men post-testicular cancer who've had RPLNDs, you know, who don't ejaculate and can't ejaculate uh, from that nerve damage. Um, and that can be rusty colored. The smell doesn't, as spermaline is, is the smell, it's kind of a disinfectant. And how quickly the semen liquefies is based on hydration, um, amount of fluid. There's an enzyme in the semen called PSA, prostate-specific antigen, that we all know about for p prostate cancer testing. That's designed to liquefy that bolus of fluid that was used in a hydraulic system to be expelled, expelled uh, and that kind of then liquefies. Um, in the in the vagina around the cervix with this enzyme. So how easy is it? Not great, right? I mean, truthfully, ask yourself, how does an average person know what the semen should look like? A, they've seen their own, or B, God forbid, and who, I don't really judge anybody if they watch pornography, truth, whatever. I mean, how do you know another man's semen is yellow and yours is white, right? I do because I'm a urologist who does andrology and I see the specimen. So it doesn't freak me out, but an average person doesn't know that. Yeah. You mentioned the, like, you know, they thought that it was one in 7,000 sperm that it took to get pregnant. And then now they're saying like one in 7 million. What are the actual odds of, of pregnancy? Like both of somebody who has a history of testicular cancer and uh, somebody who without the history of testicular cancer. So, that is exactly why I wanted to talk to you, because what is the difference, all right? Now, this is where infertility or fertility and testicular cancer is why I actually am very involved with testicular cancer, because the cell type in the testicle that leads to sperm production, called the germ cell, is exactly the same cell that can go wrong and form germ cell tumors i.e. testicular cancers, right? Non-seminomatous or seminomatous, all are basically based on a germ cell. 
which is the rapidly excuse me rapidly multiplying cells in the testicle. And when does that happen? In men, boys, 15 to 35, and that's where we classically see testicular cancers, right? So whatever goes wrong in the testicle to cause a testicular cancer can equally cause a problem with sperm production. And that's an important concept. Not only in the testicle that has the cancer, but even in the other one that has nothing felt or on ultrasound, okay? And that's an important concept because then people are afraid that, okay, well, should I get the sperm ahead of my removal of the testicle that has the cancer in it? And my answer is absolutely because that one may still be making sperm as is the other one and your sperm count might be normal. But historically, the same problem with causing testicular cancer that also causes, also causes problems with sperm production can lead to men with testicular cancer before they have their testicle removed, having a lower sperm count. Okay? And that's why it's even more important to in those young men to have their sperm frozen. Okay? Now, there is a percentage of men, and there was a study done where they showed men who are boys or young adults, whatever you want to call them, are males, who had low sperm counts before the removal of their one tumor or one testicle, then had their testicle removed and ended up being zero. Zero sperm. Okay? So on my soapbox, I try to teach the oncologists who are all about getting them to the OR and removing the testicle is please, please, please get as many samples frozen before the removal of the testicle, not after. And that's fine. That's if that's all you've got and that's all that's available or someone's very symptomatic, then fine. Try to freeze after the removal of the testicle. But there is a small percentage of men who may have zero at that point. Right. And of course, then it's very important to freeze before any chemotherapy, before any radiation, um, before even the abdominal surgery, probably uh, for removal of any lymph nodes called RPLND, retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. So I'm a huge advocate of trying to preserve sperm before any treatment. Um, now that means you have to find a lab. And if you've let, if you've ever read the Lance Armstrong book, he struggled finding a place to go and get sperm frozen, and he managed to do it. It wasn't in the same town, but it just takes a little bit of work by the oncologist or the surgeon to know that kind of stuff. And now there are home kits that can be sent for freezing, um, as there are home kits to be tested for sperm numbers. But now we have the availability for a patient to be in charge, but they have to get it done fairly promptly to have the kit mailed to them and et cetera, et cetera, right? So there are avenues to make it a little easier to freeze sperm. And then um, post-chemo or post-radiation or post-surgery, depending on which one and what you had, is why, again, there's a risk of DNA damage to sperm, especially post-radiation and or post-chemo, that you don't want anyone to get pregnant or use that sperm that is post-treatment, which has now DNA damage on it by definition, because the intent was to kill the cancer, but in so doing can cause DNA damage of any cells, right? That's why hair falls out. Um, and that's why the lungs can get affected, and that's, of course, why sperm can get affected. And that's why everything should ideally be done 
before and then or be careful post and use contraception for at least a year or two and then look at the sperm numbers to see if they've returned. If they've returned is a big question. Um, or enough, or God forbid, has to, is are low, lower than maybe anything could have been before the cancer treatment. And then will it, it you know, automatically require IVF in vitro fertilization, which is very expensive unless it's covered by insurance. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the guys that I've spoken to on this podcast, which is not nearly all the testicular cancer survivors in the world, but I mean, most of them have had the quick turnaround from like diagnosis to orchiectomy and then the sperm banking. Right. So what you're saying is like, you know, the tide needs to change on that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of angst. I can totally understand it. You know, certainly if there's, there's certain types of germ cell tumors that should be just dealt with quickly, you know, the non-seminomatous germ cells, cause their cell division can carry on quite rapidly in days. Okay. The seminomas, which is partly defined by the tumor markers that can, you know, maybe it's like definitely often slower growing that there's a little bit more time you know i always always taught that if you see a testicular cancer take it out the next day or the same day right especially once you get the tumor markers and the alpha fetoprotein might be up or the hcg and the alpha and, de and definitely if the ldh is up as well is the cell division is in the in the means of hours uh, and and you know that's why hcg goes up within days and the alpha fetoprotein goes up in a few days uh, but that doubling time of those tumor markers is why we were always taught to take it out now if the tumor markers are negative it implies seminoma and then you could maybe you know take a few days to make sure they get their sperm frozen and all the rest of it you know and so there's a little bit of there is a little bit of opportunity to, um, you know, give yourself some lead time to freeze. Is that something that maybe like urology clinics in the future, like should maybe have some kind of temporary storage on site so that they could collect it right then and there? Yeah, that's definitely, I mean, what we do and because of where I'm at, at the university of Kansas, um, um medical center hospital is, we already have one of our own. That's because we have our own practice in andrology or, you know, obviously fertility. So we have a lab. And they're very good about knowing that if a patient has cancer, not just testicular cancer, but they came in for whatever, Hodgkin's or, you know, leukemia or whatever, that they are literally quite on call to have it done, if not that day, the next day. You know what I mean? And more samples, the better, um, you know. And so that's the ideal world, my friend. You know, that is what we would like to do. Let's talk about like the semen analysis, like some terms that people might hear. Like I remember motility and um, I think mobility was another one. Like what are those specific terms that somebody might see in their semen analysis? What are good numbers for these things? Yeah, sure. So again, I've, I like to say these in phrases that uh, patients, average person who doesn't know medicine understands it's like me and being a car mechanic i know very little about my car really and so they could completely hoodwink me right so i like to at least know what they're saying in normal ways of talking and the way i best describe a semen analysis and again this is telling people who might know sporting analogy is a semen analysis is like a baseball stats is a baseball batting average or baseball stats batting statistics okay every single digit in that is at bat once 
which is like a semen analysis the first time, but it's the average that matters more, right? When you have accumulation of two or three sometimes semen analyses. There's the volume of semen. There's the pH, also how acid or alkaline the pH of the semen is, and it should be alkaline uh, above 7.2, 7.4, something like that. Then there are reference values, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, there's sperm concentration, which is how many million or not million there are per milliliter or cc is the other word, you know, centimeters cubed um, or milliliters is milliliters exactly. Um, and then there's the motility, which is really just a swimming ability. Okay. And you imagine someone looking down a microscope or boats on a lake and trying to catch zipping sperm. I mean, how accurate can you catch it in a grid? Well, computers can do that a little bit better now. They can track sperm moving across a field. Um, but within that motility, there's how how rapidly moving they are to slowly moving, to twitching, to you know not moving at all. So we can subdivide it. Um, then there is um, the morphology, which is by far the weakest, and I hate that test because it's literally doing that caveman thing. You look at the length, the width, the you know bits and bobs made, you know split tails, double tails kink neck you know and the significance when you look at the four percent normal which is the reference value by the way it goes to show my goodness that only four percent of my sperm have to be normal shapes to be normal the answer is yes but the problem is the validity and the value of the test is becoming questionable because people still get a pregnant and b can do artificial insemination and we don't often look at the morphology if there's all bad sperm when we do in vitro we take the best bad looking sperm so morphology is starting to become a little bit annoying uh, in terms of value. All right. Now, that's all individual stats. Now you want to know how good a swing was in baseball, right? And you get a sense of how much connectivity of that bat to ball was. So you have to look, stand back from a minute and look at the whole picture. And that involves what we call the total modal count, the volume multiplied by the concentration that gives you the total number of sperm in the specimen multiplied by the motility, that gives you what they call a total modal count. That's more useful. How many moving sperm are in that whole specimen that are either going in the vagina, to the cervix, up the uterus, or that they can process for potentially artificial insemination or IUI, intrauterine insemination? Because those numbers matter. But again, those numbers don't tell you functionality, and that's the biggest problem with semen analysis, Okay. Now, the dreaded word <coughs> normal, right? Normal or reference value. I hate the word normal, right? I absolutely hate it. But I find myself still saying it, reference value. So you'd think in the 21st century, again, we'd have a very robust knowledge of what the reference value of achieving a pregnancy is. Well, they did do it in 2010. Eventually, it took a while. I mean, goodness knows we've had semen analyses for at least 30, 40 years, of course. And actually more than that, excuse me, 40, 50 years, um, in terms of really measuring it. Um, but the thing is, when they then look at it as a reference value, of all, like all blood tests, okay, how do you know what that value is in men who achieved a pregnancy under one year, which is a definition of infertility if you achieve the, uh, if you don't get pregnant within a, a year, right? So they took about 800 men. We think 800 men, not just in one country, around the world. I'm like, that's pathetic. Right. But needless to say, um, 
they did take a large number of men, at least around, who have different lifestyles, different genetics, different diets, and try to define what that reference value should be globally. One should really do that within a region. You know, maybe southern states, different than northern states, maybe this diet, that diet, who the heck knows. But within your region, you should probably work out that reference value. But they have done it for an international level. And that's when the 15 million per cc or milliliter, the 1.5 cc's, the 40% swimming ability and the 4% morphology are kind of defined as the cutoff. Now, the problem with that cutoff is this. Everybody in that study achieved a pregnancy under one year, okay? But statistically, they had to create a cutoff, which is statistically done at the 5%, and then the other side is 95%, just because of statistics to create it. Because technically, everybody from very low numbers to 15 million per milliliter also achieved a pregnancy under one year. But how many people was that? 5%. 95 percent of people achieved a pregnancy under one year above that okay so what's the mean or average or what's an average guy who actually achieves a pregnancy under one year it's not 15 million per milliliter where you want the 50th percent you know where do you want the 50th percentile in the middle 50 who got pregnant above this 50 percent got pregnant below this but what's the average okay that a man has that's really about like 40 to 50 million, um, um, et cetera, right? And there's, the number's higher, but so, again, when we play to the test, it's saying, well, you're above 15 million, but you're not 40 million per milliliter or 50 million per milliliter. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'd have to look back at my uh, last semen analysis. I think I was at about 15. So, you know, I know nor- you said normal's not the right word to use, but I'm right on that, yeah. <laughs> on that number. Um, let's talk about like the effects that, um, testicular cancer treatments can have on that number. Like, um, you know, obviously you said removing the testicle, somebody might have zero after that, but like chemotherapy is going to, can that change the number or does that just change? You talked about the DNA, like what kind of effect does chemo have? on? Right. So when I talked about people with two testicles with a testicular one testicular cancer what their numbers could be they could be decreased but they could be normal just to make that clear okay now in the group of men that had a low number before the removal of the testicle 10% of them go to zero that's what that study showed right so still 90% still have sperm from the other side which is dysfunctional Right by the fact that the germ cells aren't working properly either, even though there's no cancer. So it doesn't mean all men who have a low number go to zero afterwards. I just want to make that very clear. So 90% of them still have sperm, which I still recommend freezing uh, significantly, you know, beforehand. Now, the chemo. The chemo is either going to be, you know, a single cycle nowadays of carboplatinum, let's say, for um, low-stage seminoma or observation. Right, observation is nice because you don't give any chemo. That's for seminoma. Or if there's a higher uh, amount in seminoma, then maybe they'll get carboplatinum more doses, or they may get radiation. Okay, mm-hmm. for the seminoma, and that is different. But you've got to be worried about scatter to the testicles from radiation. Still, despite being shielded, because abdominal radiation is what's happening, not testicular. Um, 
then you've got to still be careful from radiation. Radiation is probably a little less concerned, but there is scatter radiation that can cause DNA damage to sperm and or numbers. Okay, now chemo. In the germ cell tumors, specifically non-seminomatous germ cell or bad seminoma um, with significant lymph, lymph nodes, then it's going to be bleomycin, etoposide, and platinum, okay? Or EP, etoposide and platinum without the bleo because of lung issues with the bleo, and thereby it can, tends to be etoposide and platinum times four, four cycles, or BEP times three, or sometimes BEP times four, right? The one that's the bad one really predominantly uh, for sperm is the platinum, is the cisplatinum, all right? That's just historically bad in any combination for any cancers. The bleo is more the risk of pulmonary fibrosis and the pulse in the, you know, the oxygenation. Etoposide still is equally a concern on the sperm. They all do. I, I just have a generic statement. All chemotherapy is bad on sperm. Mm -hmm. There's no kind of ubiquitous. Some is better than others and not for the one that we clearly use in testicular cancer. Now, whether they use three cycles or four, depending on the degree of lymphadenopathy, where, whether they then have to do, God forbid, salvage chemo, VIP often and others, um, um, vincristine, etoposide, platinum again, uh, if I got that right, um, is bad. The more the chemo, the, the worse the risk of, 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 and often, unfortunately, they do go to zero. Um, the, the BEP times three may be less. I can't give you a statistic. I should probably know that, but I can't think of it off the top of my head right now. Um, but most it's of Sunday, all, Sunday, you got to pass. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, there's there is there is a degree, uh, and I can just sort of see the papers that might show three cycles versus four. But I've come to the conclusion: you tell everybody. Unfortunately, it's just my it's simple brain because it's quite accurate generally. Is that even three cycles are bad? Okay. I don't pretend to sugarcoat it in the sense, look, it's going to come back to normal. We have to assume there's a risk of it going to zero. And you don't necessarily need to recheck it until a year from now because we're not going to use it. But yet, I want to know recovery from chemo. Even though he could have be a completely no evidence of disease on the CT scan, the sperm could take you know several cycles, which is three months as we've discussed, mm -hmm. to recover. And the first time you check is a year. There's still risk of some DNA damage persistent at one year. And lots of people argue, and I've written a paper on this about sperm preservation, uh, infertility, and sterility in cancer patients, uh, if anyone wants to look that up. But I generally say even up, you know, two years kind of is a, the safest point when you can still say there's some risk of secondary cancers later, which is either from the chemo or, God forbid, the radiation, but sometimes from the DNA damage to the sperm. Um, and usually not in the child or birth defects, but needless to say, um, we kind of we kind of limit or say that by two years that risk is a lot less. And I can't even give you a percentage because the number of people who uh, have sperm by two years and then do IVF again would take a, a large number of patients to look at their outcomes from the children and years later of the children, which is still in the in the early days, so to speak. The kids are first lots of IVF with ICSI with the sperm injected. They're barely coming to the age of childhood themselves, 20, right? So we have techniques that we don't know the long, 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 long-term consequences despite using that sperm. But to be safe, we say one to two years. But I would tell you majority of them will be zero. 
Now, the one group of patients we've not discussed uh, before I forget are the ones who have RPLNDs, mm-hmm. right? Either primary, so before chemo, because there was a worry that there may be micromets, which is how we thought we would do this surgery years ago. We'd do the orchiectomy. The CT scan would be negative. It was a it was a non-seminomatous germ cell tumor. And for the risk of 30% of uh, micrometastases, we'd do the RPLND, retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. It started out being bilateral without sparing the nerves, which, by the way, those nerves are the ejaculatory nerves, the alpha adrenergic nerves that are involved not so much with ejaculation, sorry, let me rephrase that, but with emission which is the movement of sperm from testicle to the prostatic chamber that is because of the contraction of those nerves that are kind of milking the fluid up into that chamber. Those nerves are damaged. Then they decided that, well, we don't need to do it on both sides. We can do it on just the side of the testicle uh, where the cancer was, and if there's any lymph nodes that are positive there, we can look in the middle, and then we may have to go to the other side. Um, But then they decided, well, then we can do a template and we can try to spare those ejaculatory nerves or the alpha adrenergic nerves in the thoracolumbar trunk. And then we can save people from having a dry ejaculate. And that is definitely now happening. And they're not even doing the surgery on stage one or T1 disease to go look for micrometastases. They're either following them on CAT scan or they are giving them the chemo, you know, or, like I said, or, or observing the tumor markers. But when they are removing the lymph nodes for bulky disease, they sometimes can still do a template. They can still do nerve sparing. But sometimes when it's super bulky, they have to go both sides and they sometimes cannot spare the nerves, in which case, again, the men should have frozen sperm ahead of time because their intent is to have proven that those lymph nodes are cancer, which which case they will get post-RPLND chemo. Okay? Or... If they've had chemo and they still have disease or bulky lymph nodes or anything, then they get an RPLND after that, which is a salvage RPLND. So again, there's a double whammo on that one, right? So RPLND is not in of itself safe, but the template as they're getting better and selective is getting safer for ejaculation. So you mentioned like the DNA damage and stuff and then like the two-year period. Is there any risk like after two years of there being like a miscarriage or um you know having a child with a a birth defect with the chemo with the sperm that's experienced chemo um again when we do it with ivf with most times that's usually the case uh because the numbers may not be high enough um Again, I can't quote the paper off the top of my head because, again, a lot of it, the data is not just that. Believe it or not, the birth date, the birth defect data is terrible in the U.S. Okay, we don't have a registry that's very good. Uh, in other countries where it's a mandated coverage, like in England or Australia or France, they have those those that data, and the data doesn't suggest it's worse. It's just will they maintain the pregnancy? So, believe it or not. As easy as that question, and it should be easy to answer, because the number of testicular cancers that lead to post-chemo IVF ICSI is limited, it's going to take a multi-center trial. Okay, second of all, um, um, cost. You know, the sad part about a lot of IVF is it's not covered by insurance. So then you select out people who can afford it. Right. Mm -hmm. So then you take a small percentage of men 
of which there's about 15,000 a year who have cancer of the testicle a year, right? A percentage of those who finish their chemo that might have the need to go to IVF, then it becomes who can afford it. So you can see how difficult that study is, even though it's a very simple question. Yeah. Um, and so I can't answer it, but again, I'd probably have to do a lit search just to see if anyone has tried to. And again, the outcome data is not forthcoming because a lot of people don't just follow miscarriage, which is most common, miscarriage and or, you know, goes to term. They call it a take-home baby rate, okay? But what happens after that in terms of even simple birth defects at birth to delayed discoveries, right? Not very well done, even for the bigger population of uh, patients who have just done IVF for non-cancer reasons, if you know what I mean. So this question might be difficult to answer because it, you might not have the data on it, but yeah, um, you know where the spermatic the sperm cells are, like you mentioned, like the germ cells, and that's kind of where things go wrong and, and cause testicular yes, yes. cancer. Yes, if somebody if a guy gets a woman pregnant and does not has not yet been diagnosed, right? Like maybe it just happens in the time frame of a month. And they get pregnant and then a month later he finds out he's got testicular cancer, but she's yeah. already like that sperm is already in her. Is yeah. that, is that cell that is now in her a risk for her in the pregnancy? No, no, believe it or not. I, I can't say it totally dogmatically, but it, it, it comes across dogmatically because it's true. And that happens from time to time is that the sperm was not the, such a damaged sperm that because there are lots of checks and balances, believe it or not, in the formation of an embryo or correcting an embryo, even after cell division starts, it's so clever, it's insane. They, they know they've got repair mechanisms in the embryo. But barring that, the statistics I don't have true. Again, the number would be low of that very specific subset. But there's no added risk because that sperm achieved the pregnancy, you know, and not to begin again, a very late term way of saying it best one, one, you know, best sperm fertilized enough to stick and be maintained. So if there aren't any other genetic risks because of female age or it's like, like, like down syndrome or other, or other things that can be non-related to cancer, which is most likely the case. So if a woman at 35, 36, 37, 40 gets pregnant, those genetic risks, independent of the testis cancer later diagnosis, on you know has not it's not connected to the testis cancer or the sperm that formed that child. Again, again, we don't entirely know for complete uh, transparency, but at the same time, you know, <clears throat> a good question would be what the degree of sperm pre-testicular cancer discovery have DNA damage to it. Or uh, through fluoroscopic in situ hybridization, we can tell, tell whether there's aneuploidy. That's a great question. But you're asking such a predictive question that it would be impossible, right? Yeah. Someone has to have a study going. When you then catch someone who did a sperm count, right, who then later discovered they had cancer. Yeah, it's really right? impossible. So, <laughs> almost impossible, right? First of all, the number of patients who walk into a clinic with infertility, who then were diagnosed then and there with testicular cancer, then and there is about 1%. Okay? Now, we do have patients who walk in, like maybe, you're, you're, you know, the survivor group, who have had testicular cancer and then come in post-everything. Mm -hmm. That's a 
not as uncommon as it should. You know, we wish it to be, but yeah, again, do they have frozen sperm? That's a simple question. But the people who later develop it is very hard to predict who might get cancer, obviously. But needless to say, I have definitely found, unfortunately, twice this year, which is shocking in the scheme of things, two patients who came in for infertility that had testicular cancers. Wow. Okay. And, you know, like I said, it's 1%. And to have two back-to-back, not back-to-back, but two in the first three months of the year is very unusual. But that's why they should all be evaluated. That's why men should do self-exams. And then, of course, all infertility should be worked up on the male side, right? Maybe we will pick up someone with an intratesticular lesion or microlithiasis. And again, these are very, very, you know, uncommon situations, Mm-hmm. Um, because the number of people with testicular cancer is not very high. Interesting. Um, before we move on to the sexual health, um, are there any ways that a guy could increase his count after chemo? Like, can he can he eat specific foods? Not really. Okay. Not really. All you can do is prevent them getting worse, which many times that's not. It's still avoiding the things that you should avoid beforehand, which is hot tubs, bathtubs, binging, Anything that makes this brain kind of a bit fuzzy can make that brain kind of fuzzy too. So alcohol, you know, binging, you know, even marijuana, vaping has been debated. You know, lots of things are never quite clean cut like that. But other than making it, preventing it from getting worse, making it better is not very unlikely. Unless they had a low T, which with or without being able to boost it with a drug called Clomid, which we'll get to uh, when we're going to talk about sexual health in a minute. Um, that doesn't work very well. Okay. The biggest insult was removing a testicle and getting chemo period. Right. Mm-hmm. The low T may be secondary. It may be because there's only one testicle, but there's no magic bullet in making the T better. The main thing is not to be on testosterone. So I'll say that. So ironically, if a guy comes in who was diagnosed with low T after his testicular cancer treatments, doctor said, put you on it, fine. Did they even check from a kid that, you know, young man wanted or man wanted to be, to have children, right? Testosterone shuts down sperm production. It's like having a depot shot in a woman with, with, a, with, a, with a contraceptive. It shuts down sperm production. So yeah, those guys, if you stop the testosterone, you can reboot them and they can, you know, make sperm again. Again, depends on, I don't know how where the number would have been because we don't know the number before the testosterone. Mm-hmm. So that's a valuable point in of itself, I guess. Interesting. All right. So um, the last thing that we were going to talk about after fertility was sexual health. And when you mentioned that as a topic, are you talking about like uh, libido? Are you talking about ED? Okay. So whenever I talk about sexual health, it's all of them. Okay. Everything from ejaculation, everything to include libido, everything to include erectile function. So sexual is everything, right? Um, arguably, technically, fertility or sperm falls into that, but that kind of has its own little title of fertility. That's fine. So we already know, we talked about the post rplnd effect or not having an effect, is an ejaculation or an emission. They still have contractions, of climax because that's S234 that's a different nerve route the same nerve center that causes erection so erections stay the same after RPLND contractions and potentially climax can remain the same but no fluid comes out 
the dry ejaculate, they call it. And that could have backfired into the bladder because the bladder neck did not close because of those, those um, alpha adrenergic nerves not working properly or no fluid moved out from the testicle. In those situations, it's not a big deal from, from a true sexual standpoint because there's still pleasure for the man. There's no fluid. Okay, that's a visual thing. Maybe it's a pressure thing. But it's a bigger problem for the fertility side. And in those cases, those men need to check the, the sperm hasn't backfired into their bladder after they climax, which we check the urine after ejaculation, or they need a thing called electroejaculation or a testicular biopsy. The electroejaculation is designed to stimulate, like jump-starting a car, uh, of the nerves that go to the uh, emission process, kind of like with a probe in the rectum, which has electricity, and that has to be done under anesthesia for obvious reasons. Um, or we just do IVF with the biopsy of a solitary testis, right? And so that can happen, and we can get sperm from the testicle if, if we think there's sperm there. So that's one important part of sexual dysfunction is ejaculation. Again, erection's okay, climax is okay, pleasure should be okay, maybe a little bit diminished compared with if there was fluid there. Uh, visual pleasure of seeing semen, unfortunately, is usually gone or very diminished. Erections, just like I said, erections should remain the same because you're not damaging the nerves either from the chemo uh, or the radiation of the sacral uh, nerves that cause erection. S two, three, four. Okay, they're down in the tailbone. And now the libido. Now, how I approach libido is it is multifactorial, right? A man has just been diagnosed with cancer. He's survived, or young male, I should say, or male, has survived all of that, gone through chemo, through hell and back, come back down to earth, and now is a survivor like you are. All right. If you can get back in the in the groove of feeling good about yourself because you're not worrying about cancer every five minutes, or I know that when even times come for the CAT scan to come along, people get anxious right beforehand, right? Mm -hmm. And then you lose your mojo a little bit then because you're kind of anxious for other reasons, which is cancer, right? Mm -hmm. So there's the psychological real effect of what happens in cancer survivorship, psychological overtones and PTSD, right? So sometimes people get onto um, Prozac, Zoloft, which ironically can affect ejaculation also, but also can affect sex drive because it lowers the T and raises prolactin um, and T being the testosterone level. Then the second one is, okay, what if it's just low T, low testosterone? One testicle, it's had chemo, the germ cells aren't working, but the Leydig cells, which are separate from the germ cells, usually are still working, which is the testosterone-producing cells. But yes, if you've had chemo, often your T level can still be down from that. We have to make sure we check the hormones that go to the testicle, make sure there's not a secondary reason that can be dealt with with replacing, you know, FSH, LH, which is HCG, ironically, which is the same um, hormone that can go up in testicular cancer, um, to boost a man's testosterone or give them Clomid, which is a selective estrogen receptor modulator to stop the feedback of estrogen to the brain, raises the hormone FSH, raises the hormone LH. LH leads to more testosterone. FSH may or may not help sperm production. And that internal rising of their own testosterone level may boost libido. Okay? Problem with it all is it's multifactorial. 
the PTSD, the meds, the psychological overtones, the potential issues of sleep or poor sleep, stress driving your T level, in being you know unfit, sleep apnea, low thyroid level, obesity. So this drives me mental usually in my own clinic because this is where men's health is very important. I'm not the bastion of a great example of men's health, so I clearly am a work in progress also because I have the same vices that any man has. Plus I've got some genetic predisposition. I think my, whole, my, my side of big bone family that it is, but that's not an excuse. It's just to prove that diet and exercise isn't everything, but it's important. And sometimes if you need to supplement the tea for libido, okay, energy, that's a terrible one because that's multifactorial. Foggy head, post-chemo, could be that, right? Foggy brain and, and, and loss of energy, I'm sorry, testosterone has been sold the wrong way, okay? It's multifactorial, okay? Testosterone is not cocaine, all right, repeat, it's not cocaine. You don't get a sudden buzz from it. It's not like caffeine. You don't wake up like, oh, my God, I'll sniff some testosterone and the world will be great. doesn't work like that. The anabolic nature and the androgenic nature of testosterone is it builds muscle. It can lead to these secondary male characteristics um, of which erectile function and uh Libido have been probably the two most important ones. Everything else has got not very good correlation with better T levels. Um, that's the new. That's actually a, the study by the uh, European Male Aging Study from I think 2010 or 14 in the New England Journal, where the titration of T levels doesn't correlate with a lot of things. Right? You think it does? Well, then there's a placebo effect in here too, mm -hmm. which is up to 30 percent. So. Yes, I, a young man who's had one testicle removed, you know, the machismo of it, the, okay, am I in a relationship, not in a relationship, do I want a prosthetic to boost my kind of, um, my general morale uh, of, of well-being, just because it's somewhat cosmetic, along with the PTSD of the cancer and the chemo. Yeah, all of the above. I mean, my heart goes out to you guys as the survivors, because you're young and, you know, living your life early and then something like this happens, but then we can reclaim it. And that's the important part of this conversation. Yeah. I don't want to keep you too much longer past an hour. Cause I know you're busy and it's a Sunday, but um, if anybody has listened to this and they still have questions, is there like a reputable place they can look online? Can they contact you? Oh, they can absolutely contact me. Um, I, I usually don't give my email address out just because it's inundated already. But if they ever want to contact me, um, I, I guess the best way would be our clinic number, 913-588-6146. It's a lot of trouble these days because telehealth is great. But unless we have licenses in the States that um, we do the telehealth, we cannot practice the telehealth um, um, remotely. So if you're in Missouri or Kansas, I do have a license in both. I could always refer you to colleagues who are in those other states because the, there is a large body of about 300 or so specialists who do exactly what I just talked about, who are just, you know, they very specialize in, uh, in what we have just been talking about. So I can always get you guys connected. There is the SSMR 
finder.org website, which will give you equally a map of find a doctor or the smru.org, which will allow you to find another, again, doctor um, who is a male specialist in your region to sound like a commercial for a second. <laughs> awesome. Dr. Ajay Nangia, thank you so much for being on It Takes Balls. It does take balls to be a survivor, my friend. It does. Okay. Greatness for you all. I wish you all the best. Go on, live your lives and be special human beings and be champions of humanity because of your disease. You have had a new lease on life that gives you a new power. All right. That gives you a new power to be an advocate for goodness, kindness, medical care, and personal and family greatness. Hug everybody, love everybody, and remember what you've survived. It will make It's made you a better person, a better person. All right, God bless you all. Take care. Drop the mic. Drop the mic. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, take care, everyone. For more information and resources for your testicular cancer journey, visit testiculacancerawarenessfoundation.org. You can also follow us on social media at Testis Cancer. We're on Facebook at Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation.